Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you. We, I pray, Father, that as we look into your word this morning, as we finish the book of Ephesians, that you would speak to us, that you would come by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds. Lord, we, we give ourselves afresh to you. We pray that you would do that work, accomplish the work that you want to do in each of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The last of a four-part series on spiritual warfare. That's what we're looking at today. And as I mentioned, we're planning to finish the book of Ephesians. And um, in this series, we we've looked at, three weeks ago, we looked at worldviews in conflict. And, and remember, we talked about what is a worldview. It's the way that you look at life. It's what do you believe? What informs the way that you observe the world around you? That's the view that you have of the world, your worldview. And we looked at how important that is that we have a biblical worldview as we interpret the things that are going on in our world. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at kingdoms in conflict. We looked at the fact that there is a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. Now, remember, those are not equal. It's not like we don't know how it's going to come out because we know that Jesus already triumphed at the cross, and yet the battle's on. We live on a fallen world. It's a world that he purchased the right to redeem it, and he will redeem it. We see in Revelation chapter 5, he takes the title deed to the earth. He's the only one worthy. And yet in the meantime, we live on a fallen planet and it's still in the, the power of Satan himself. He is the one who's the prince of this world. So we looked at kingdoms in conflict last week. Now, remember, you look at Ephesians 6 here when he talks about spiritual warfare, verses 10 to 13 talk about the war. Verses 17 and following talk about the warrior. And as we've been looking at the warrior, last week we looked at the warrior as far as his armor is concerned and, and what that armor means. We went through that piece by piece looking at it. Uh, and we saw that the armor is mostly defensive. Uh, and it, except for when we get to the word of God, it's both defensive and offensive. Uh, this week, we're going to look at the warrior's weaponry. And he shifts. Again, he talks about this defensive armor, and then he goes into talking about the word of God and prayer. That is the weaponry that we have as we fight this fight. So before we get into all of that, I want to, as we're considering these things, I want to look at two areas where people can fall into error. All right, and, and people can swing on both sides of this issue of spiritual warfare and it's important that we have a balanced biblical view, because if we don't, we can become vulnerable to the enemy's schemes, to the attack of the enemy. The first is an overemphasis on the battle, uh, or uh, this is a, a hyper-spiritual uh, approach that would be to blame every sin, every conflict, every problem that we have on demons that need to be cast out. And I've been around people like that, and there's kind of this hyper-spiritual attitude towards that. And it's, it's important that we identify the things that are going on in the spiritual realm, but it's also important we understand that we can't overestimate Satan's power. Uh, he's not eternal. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Uh, he's not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. 
He's created. And that's the big difference between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It's an inferior kingdom. He would love to have us think that he has more power in our lives than he does. As believers, if you know the Lord this morning, he has limited power in your life. He will attack, he will influence, he will oppress, but his power is limited. So as we look at this, we see that it's not always the devil made me do it. You've heard that old saying, well, the devil made me do it. No, it's not. We're going to see, and and we're going to look at here, uh, also towards the end of the message this morning, we're going to look at the world, the flesh, and and the devil. Those are the three things, the three arenas within which the battle is fought. So uh, more later on that, but the second thing I want to look at is an underemphasis on spiritual things or a hypo-sensitive approach. Uh, and, that's, this is, and, and this is something that happens in the church. I want to talk about it for a bit. It's to completely ignore or to at least have a, a, a low view of the spiritual realm. To ignore the fact that the Bible tells us that our battle is against spiritual forces. They're real and they exist. This is a view that underestimates Satan's power. And there's several ways that that is accomplished because he is exceedingly wise, exceedingly crafty in the way that he puts the allure out there. And the first is when somebody just begins to look at and they consider primarily that Satan is a mythological figure, that he's got this red suit and horns and a little pointed tail, and he's going around harassing people. It's ridiculous. It's the stuff of myths. The Bible tells us that he comes as an angel of light, that he's probably still the most beautiful of all God's creation, and that's the deception. It's easy for us, if you're a Christian, it's easy for you to say, well, I would never play with a Ouija board. My sister had one of those when I was, even as a little kid, and I didn't know nothing about nothing. I thought it was creepy. This thing would just track all over. Yeah, we're not going to get into reading tarot cards. I mean, that's pretty easy. That's, you know, we kind of look at that and go, yeah, well, that's totally dark and all of that. But it's important that we realize that Satan, the powers of darkness, he's not a dark plaything. And folks, he's very subtle in his approach. I want to be careful how I say this because I, I, I don't want to come off as legalistic as like, you better stop and you better, you know, all of that. But I do want to call it out. What about in my life and in yours? What about movies? I, you know, I look, sometimes I look on some of the streaming services and I look at what's out there and it's dark, 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 dark. What am I putting in? What about media? in all of its varied forms. It's dark. What about Halloween this week? Yeah, I understand. It's for the kids and all that. And and again, you can make your own decisions on that. However, at its root is a low view of the power of spiritual forces and the darkness that's out there. Here's another one. What about what the Bible calls sorcery? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul, when he's talking about the deeds of the flesh, he says he, he uses the word sorcery. The Greek word for that is pharmakeia. What he's talking about is drugs. Yeah, I mean, look around. I mean, look, there's a marijuana dispensary on, on every corner, and, and you, you might think, well, it's legal. Who cares? Abortion's legal. 
you might think, well, you know, everybody's doing it. It's kind of like just like alcohol. It, it, not according to God's word. What about, and I mean, and, and now psilocybin mushrooms are on the ballot, and, and there's this whole thing that's being floated out there. I mean, they're hallucinogenic drugs, and it's pharmacaea. It's sorcery, and we need to call it what it is. The point in all of this is not for me, I'm not trying to lay down doctrines about these things. I'm saying that we need to have our eyes open. We need to be discerning as to the the schemes of the enemy, the powers of darkness, and how he is advancing his agenda on this earth. And if you don't think that there's a dark agenda, turn on the news. There is so much going on, just unmasked, out in the open. But the point is that we don't get bogged down. We don't get caught up in being totally focused on all of that. The key to successful spiritual warfare is to have a balanced biblical view. What does God's word have to say about it? How does God inform us through it? Last week, we looked at those six pieces of armor, the armor of God. We looked at what it is to gird yourself with truth in the inner man, that are you the same person here on Sunday morning as you are at home? Is there truth? Is that an underlying thing in your life to where you live your life in integrity? We looked at what it is to have our hearts protected by his righteousness, because Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he will condemn wherever he can. He leads people into sin, and then he leaves them hanging, and he condemns them for it. But having my heart protected with his righteousness, knowing that I stand in the righteousness of Jesus himself, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that his word comes to bear. I have my heart protected by knowing that, yeah, I, I've been forgiven. I've been washed in the blood of the lamb. I've been seated in the heavenly places with Christ, that I wear his righteousness. It's not my own because my righteousness is his filthy rags that we stand firm in the gospel of peace. Remember, we talked about the spiky shoes of the Roman warrior. They had spikes on their shoes so that they could hold their ground in the battle. And, and, and that's why he talks about that, that we stand firm, that our emphasis is on the gospel of peace, that we don't run around chasing demons. We run around telling people, look, you need to come to Jesus. You need to have a relationship with him. You need to be strengthened by him because only then can you stand in the battle. Otherwise, you're fair game. We live in a world full of people who would minimize the things of God that are fair game for the enemy. We looked at what it is to have the shield of faith and shielding ourselves to repel the enemy's attacks. And those attacks are the enticements for us to sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those things that that we're warned in God's word and we look at from Adam forward to Jesus forward to us. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no temptations that overtaking you other than that which is common to man. That Jesus was tempted in all ways even as we are and yet without sin. We allow the word of God to come to bear in our lives and we shield ourselves with a shield of faith from the enemy's attacks, the enticements to sin. Look at guarding our minds with the helmet of salvation. And our, our minds need guarding. <laughs> if we looked at that, again, I don't want to go in depth in it again, but essentially, when we look at the helmet of salvation, Paul in Thessalonians ties that to the hope that we have, that this life isn't all there is. 
And so when I look around and I see the absolute decay, when I look around and I see the way that people are treating other people, when I look around and I see the sin and the deception and the cesspool that our society is becoming, that I can take hope, that I can have my mind protected with the helmet of salvation, knowing that this life isn't all there is. Great hope in that. Look at what it is to stand ready, relying upon God's word to see us through the battles, to see us to victory. It's always by his spirit and through his word. And yet, not yet, and as important as all of these defensive pieces of armor are, and they're critically important, critically important, the battle is more than being equipped intellectually. We need to ask God to weave these things into the fabric of our lives We need to apply God's word to our lives because if we don't, then we've just got a head full of knowledge. It's not enough. If we don't, we run the risk of slipping into spiritual apathy, what could be termed dead orthodoxy. And here's a quote from a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love his stuff. He says, dead orthodoxy is the greatest danger confronting the individual who is evangelical in his outlook And it is indeed the greatest danger confronting any individual church. Orthodoxy, the word, it's a a Latin word. It's ortho, it means straight. Doxy, it means glory. It's straight glory. In other words, we can know all the right stuff and yet be struggling in the core of who we are with the Lord because we have a weak walk with the Lord. Here's a good definition of what's meant by dead orthodoxy or spiritual apathy. For believers, it's correct thinking about God, but one's relationship with God is suffering. There's a lack of hunger for God. There's a lack of desire to understand the things that God is passionate about. There's a lack of sobriety over spiritual things. Now, that's not the same thing as being dry. We go through, if you've been walking with the Lord for much time at all, you know, we go through times where it's just dry. It's like, Lord, I'm just going to do this because you say to do it. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to continue to do what I know you've called me to do. I am not feeling it. It's important that we identify in those dry times, part of what God is doing is he's showing us that our walk with him is not based on how we feel. It's not the same as being dry. This is a subtle thing. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous condition because most often those who are straying into it, those who are drifting, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, we need to pay more closer attention to the things that we've heard lest we drift away from it. That's this person. Their soul has become or is becoming lean. Leanness of soul is a real danger and it affects real Christians. At all levels, I have, I'll tell you, there was a period of time in my walk with the Lord years years ago where my soul became lean. I became what the Bible calls dull of hearing. I wasn't, I was still a Christian, but I became susceptible to the battle because that's what happens. You become vulnerable when you're not strong in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 The Apostle Paul exhorts the Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. He says, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified. 
He says, unless you don't belong to him. And I trust that there are times where those of us that do belong to him, we, we are tempted to just begin to compromise. And this is a heart that compromises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the people in Corinth, they were, <laughs> they were trying to disqualify the message by coming against the messenger. That's kind of a common practice. This is one of Satan's ploys, is that if he can discredit the messenger, then you don't have to do business with the message. And Paul had a hard message for them. Very often, very hard. Uh, I love the Corinthian letters. I mean, they were written years before, five, seven years before the letter to the Ephesians. But in those letters, it's like if a church could screw it up, the Corinthians were doing it. And I like that because when Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians of correction, and 2 Corinthians, somewhat correction, but uh, other things going on there. But when he writes to them, he in this correction, he gives us great instruction on the, the perils that can befall us as Christians. What he's doing with these guys is 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 they're they're saying, well, you know, Paul, you don't let's see here. Yeah, they're saying you're bold when you write to us, but when you're in person, you're you're very gentle, you're very subtle. And so they're saying, you know, you're kind of two-faced, Paul, and I'm not sure if we want to do business with the message here, because after all, you're kind of in the flesh on this whole ministry thing. What they weren't realizing is that there is one that we know who is both bold and gentle, <laughs> and his name is Jesus, and that's okay. There are times where we are called upon and we're pressed to be bold with others. There are times where we simply want to have grace and just be gentle, understanding that we're God's workmanship. I've told you guys many times before, and I'll tell you again, don't assume that you know God's agenda for the person sitting next to you. That is a recipe, especially if it's your spouse, for trouble. He has his own agenda, and he crafts it to us individually. Let God do the changing. Let God do the conforming work. Let him just have grace and allow him to work on that person. Don't assume that you know because maybe he's doing something with you. That must be what he's doing with them. That may be something that's down the road or it may be something that was already handled. We don't know. We don't know the heart. We can't see the heart. God does make room for that. So here in 2 Corinthians and Paul is he's refuting their claim that he was carnal about this whole thing. He's talking about the warfare, the battle that we're engaged in. And in 2 Corinthians 10.3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Now, the flesh here, you could look at it as the unregenerate or the, 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 the unspiritual man. But what he's talking about here is the physical man, the physical woman. He's talking about the temporal as opposed to the spiritual. So when he's saying we don't walk according, or we do walk in, uh, according to the flesh, we're physical beings, we don't do battle in the physical realm. That's his point here. And so as we look at it, he's saying we don't war according to the flesh. We don't use the world's weapons. Think about Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, he goes down a whole list, a whole pedigree of his qualifications as a Jew. He says, man, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That's where Jerusalem is, within the tribe of Benjamin's territory. He said, you know, I, I was learned. Uh, I, was, I was 
educated by Gamaliel himself. He had the equivalent of two PhDs in theology. This guy knew his stuff. He had position. He had status. He had a great deal of influence. What he says in Philippians 3 is, I counted all these things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And he uses a personal pronoun there, my Lord. He said, I discounted, I discarded all of those earthly weapons, those things that I could use to come against, to, to speak to you. He's making it clear that he doesn't wage war as the world does or use the world's weapons. He knows that they're completely ineffective in the battles that we face. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, let me give you a contrast. Let's go back to the armor for a minute. And let's look at the spiritual and the carnal. So instead of the belt of truth, manipulation. Instead of the breastplate of righteousness, holding out the image of success. That's a big one in the world. Instead of the shoes of the gospel, smooth words. You're a smooth talker. Instead of the shield of faith, creating the perception of power. Instead of the helmet of salvation, lording it over others. Mental superiority, instead of having my mind protected. Instead of the sword of the spirit, leaning on human schemes, programs. The weapons Paul used were profoundly simple. The weapons of our warfare, we'll see here, are the proclaimed word of God and prayer. You might think, well, yeah, I read the Bible, I pray. Well, let's look at what he says here. In verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 10, he says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, in, this verse is rendered differently in different translations of the Bible. It has the same import. It has the same essential meaning, the same essence. But in the ESV, the English Standard Version, he says, destroying arguments and every lofty opinion. In the King James, casting down imaginations. In the New American Standard Bible, I am partial to that. kind of cut my teeth on it as a young Christian and still love to study with it. He says, destroying speculations. Now, I want to illustrate this, and we're going to go back to where we were last week. But I want to take another pass through Matthew 16, uh, and, and I'm going to make it brief. I, 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 I mean, I could teach on that passage all day. It's just a powerful, powerful passage. The scene is Caesarea Philippi. And as you remember, if you were here, if you weren't, I'll, I'll go through it briefly again. Paul, and Paul, Jesus takes his men to Caesarea Philippi. It's a place up in the Golan Heights. It's on the flanks of Mount Hermon. And it was a spiritual center, not a Christian place, but it was a, it was a hive of satanic activity in their day. Had been for centuries. So he takes these guys up there. They're standing there. There's no less than 14 pagan temples surrounding them. And he's going to teach them some things about the spiritual realm. <laughs> it says in verse 13 of Matthew 16, And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. 
So Jesus, immediately upon arriving at Caesarea Philippi, begins to question his men, and they come back with something that is patently false. We know, I mean, we read the end from the beginning. We know that Jesus is way more than a prophet. He, is, he was a prophet, but, that, but he was more than that, prophet, priest, and king. And so he gives these guys this question. They answer him with something that's false. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter answers and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember, if you look at that, I don't believe he said it that way. I think he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, not like all of these dead lowercase g gods that are surrounding us here in this place. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Peter here, speaking by the word of God, gives an answer which destroys the speculation of the others. That's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 10. All right? So in verse 18, he goes on, he says, And I say to you that you're Peter, little stone, and on this rock, on this foundational stone, your statement that I'm the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, uh, for those of you that weren't with us, the gates of hell was a place. At Caesarea Philippi, a big rock face, and a kind of a cave in the middle of this rock face, and there was a pool in that cave. It's a, it's a very large pool, bigger than this building. That place was called the Gates of Hell. That's the name, and it's still called that. And it, the, what was believed for centuries is that that was the, the place where the spirits descended into the lower parts of the earth and ascended out of the lower parts of the earth, and that was the center of the spiritual realm. So when Jesus says the gates of hell won't prevail against my church, he's pointing into the hole. And he's saying the counsels of the unseen world will not prevail against my church. He's talking about spiritual warfare. Standing there, both times I've been to Israel, standing there and looking at this place, it was like, this place is still creepy. I mean, it is still, there's there's just just a thing there. So what he's saying here is he says, The gates of hell won't prevail against my church. And then he goes on and he tells them why they won't prevail. He says, and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. He's casting down imaginations. They would be thinking, there's no way I can do anything against these spiritual forces. People have died for centuries in this thing, and that's pretty scary. It's pretty frightening to me. But he's saying, you know what? You don't have to be affected by that. Here's the truth. Uh, he's the word incarnate. He is giving them God's word, destroying the speculations that they can't prevail against the powers of darkness. He says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Uh, Again, briefly, the keys to the kingdom meant in the first century, if if a landowner was going away on a journey and he was going to leave, he would give his servants the keys to his house. What that was, it was it was sort of an idiomatic phrase to say, I am giving you authority over my house. I am giving you the equivalent of a power of attorney that whatever you transact in my name will be done. That's why he says, whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will already have been bound, loosed in heaven. The whole thing, the binding and loosing is saying that you're, you are now a steward. You are a, a direct representation of, of the master in his kingdom. You have the keys to the kingdom. 
So what he's saying here is you have utter authority over the powers of darkness in this place. The gates of hell won't prevail. So he's casting down imaginations. He's destroying speculations. Let's bring this home. I'm going to give you a series of, and they're mock prayers, but they're indicative of the prayers that all of us pray. And, and, and let's look at how this works in our lives, how we do battle by the word of God and prayer. Here's the first. God, I don't know if I can bear up under the weight of this. My heart is overwhelmed. My strength is nearly gone. I don't know if you've been in places like that. I have, and they're not fun. And as I wrote these, I, I would just sit, I sat in my office and, and just saying, Lord, just give me your word. Speak to me. And these are the things that would come to me as I sat with this, in this particular prayer was Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. God's word responding to my prayer. There's another, life is hard right now. Man, it is just tough. I think that maybe God is mad at me or he's punishing me for something. God, show me. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans eight twenty eight and 29, coming to bear as my life is open before him, as I'm in the battle, as I'm discouraged, as I'm feeling distraught, as life is hard and I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? And he informs my heart. He informs my thinking that he's working. It's not because I've done something. I'm covered by the blood of the lamb. He's not angry with me, nor will he ever be. He's working in my life. He's allowing circumstances to come to bear that he can conform me to the image of Christ. Uh, that's, it's just part of how his word comes alive in my heart as I go through things. Here's another. Every time I try to share my faith with my coworkers, They tease me, treat me as if I was naive or foolish. God, am I doing something wrong? The word of God coming to bear, but the natural man doesn't receive the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Again, God answering as I'm taking these things, I'm holding them up to him. Do you see why it's important that we study God's word, that we don't just study it for head knowledge, but that we have it, as I mentioned, woven into the fabric of our lives so that once it goes in, that when I'm faced with a particular situation or trial, it comes out. And by his spirit, he illuminates that his word in my life in relevant ways. Here's one, and, and, and this wasn't one that I made up. This is mine. <laughs> Lord, I am so frustrated as I look around and I see the violence, and it might be yours too, as I see the corruption unmasked and out in the open at every level, as I see hatred and evil manifesting, it seems everywhere I look, and because lawlessness will, will abound, the love of many will grow cold, we're told in Matthew twenty four twelve. God's word, you guys hear me say it, God's word has the answers. Am I willing to be immersed in his word to, to the point where his spirit can take those things and apply them 
as I go through my daily life. That's how we respond in the battle. That's the word of God coming to bear through prayer. The point, holding our lives up in the middle of the battles, God speaks to us by his spirit through his word. He's casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of him, bringing my thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do you see how that works? you see why Paul, what he's saying here in 2 Corinthians is so important? It is critically important as we live our lives and as our worldview is adjusted to see the things that are going on around us and to interact in a godly manner as we go. Why we need to stay connected to the source, having hearts that are open as he illuminates his word in our lives. If I become spiritually lethargic, it's difficult for this to happen. That's why spiritual apathy is so important that we identify it and we avoid it. But this was what was happening to the Corinthians and Paul knew it. That's why he's addressing this issue with them. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 10, he says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So what is he saying in that? What he's saying is that God gives time for them to change their minds about their disobedience. And he does that with us. If you're not a Christian this morning, he's giving time. Uh, 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but he's long-suffering, patient, towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So for the unbelieving heart, there's time. Still, we don't know when that door is going to close, and I believe it's going to close soon. It's a whole different study. But the point is, for the believing heart, he's beckoning. Tighten up your walk with me. Be committed. Be a student of my word. Not so you can just get a head full of knowledge, but so that you can walk this out. Because we live in an evil world and we are in increasingly evil times. And if we don't stand for something, we're liable to fall for anything. It gives time for people to change their minds about their disobedience. That's Paul saying there. Now, switching gears to Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 17, we read, And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So he's talking about the sword of the Spirit. We talked about that being both defensive and offensive. You can defend when the attack comes, but it's also offensive. Think about a soldier or a gladiator in training. And Paul, like I said, he's sitting there, he's chained to this Roman guard and they switch guards, but they're still Roman soldiers. They're Praetorian guard. They're like special forces. And so he knows well what this armor looks like. So as he's looking at this, he's, he's seeing and he's imagining, it's just like, what do these guys go through? He talks about the sword of the spirit and how the soldiers would have to practice. They would practice ahead of time, ahead of the battle, so that when the battle came, they would be able to, you hear that when you talk to policemen, you hear that when you talk to military people, I went with my training. I went with my training. And I went, and that's, it's exactly what you'll hear because that training is all important. <clears throat> Now, my brother Jim, as I was looking at this, I, I was remembering my brother Jim. And by the way, if you think about it, pray for my brother. He has some large medical issues coming up. Anyway, I called him to talk to him. But uh, I remember that he spent time in college on the college fencing team. And, and he was good. I used to watch him uh, as a little kid, to watch him spar. And, and uh, he was undefeated for two years. 
And, and, you know, he'd have this whole suit and the big screen deal on, and he'd have one hand behind him. He was left-handed, so he got an advantage right away. And he'd be, you know, having the posture and the whole pose and all that. So when I called him, I, I said, Jim, I'm teaching in Ephesians 6. I'm talking about the sword of the Spirit. Uh, and let me ask you a question. What was the one thing that you would attribute to your success in fencing? And his answer was immediate. He said, practice, more practice, and more practice. He said it was all about practicing. He said, you know, we had numbers for body parts. And so if it's like number eight, then I'm going to go for your shoulder. And this is how they would know that how they would do battle. And if it was number four, it might be, I'm going to go for your torso and so on. Folks, that's a big part of why we come here, not to learn defense, but so that we can practice, so that we can come to a place of having our minds and our hearts informed as to the wiles of our adversary. That's why we spend time on our own in personal devotions. We want to be ready for the battles, not if, but when they come. As Jim, my brother and I spoke, he he began to tell me about a, a primary strategy in fencing which was fascinating to me. And, and we'd never talked at length about this before. And if you know anything about fencing, there is a maneuver called pari and repost. What that is, is the match begins with a lunge, okay? The guy who's the aggressor, he begins with the lunge. Uh, it's called the lunge, and that's the attack, all right? So pari is the defense to the attack, that's where if you've seen in movies that, you know, a guy with a, a sword goes, he sticks his sword out there and he goes to get this guy and the guy throws his sword off and he knocks his sword off to the side. That's pari. Okay. It doesn't stop there. <laughs> the next term that my brother told me about was called the repost. Repost is the French word for answer. It's how the guy that's in the sword fight answers the attack. So he does pari, and it, it, they, I love to dramatize things in the movies where the guy knocks the guy's sword out of his hand. That's pari. And it goes flying, clanging off somewhere. And then he goes right in for the kill. That's repost. He goes, it's a, he goes from being in a defensive posture to an offensive posture. It, it's, the term is hyphenated because it's, it's a combined move. And, and it, it's both defensive and offensive. How does that apply with what you're talking about, Pastor John? I'm kind of losing me here. But the point, in spiritual battles, we deflect the enemy's attacks with the word of God. We gain understanding and take ground in the battle through prayer. Pari, repost. In Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15, we read uh, Jesus, or Paul talking about Jesus, his work, the work that he accomplished at the cross. He says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, talking about in those days, they would take, if you owed a debt, they would list your debt and they'd nail it to your door. When the debt was paid, they would take it and they would fold this thing in half, paid in full. So he's wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That's the judgment that we had prior to coming to Christ. He says he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Verse 15 is interesting. Having disarmed principalities and powers, pari, <laughs> he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, repost. And Paul's not talking about that here, but I just think it's fascinating to me how that maneuver in sword fighting applies all the way through. So as we're looking at this, back to 2 Corinthians 10, 
Paul now shifts from talking about the word of God into prayer. He says, praying always with all prayer. Now he says, praying always with all prayer. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? No, not really. Because he says, with supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. So what he's saying here is prayer is central to doing spiritual warfare. It's a, it is it is a very central tool or weapon in the warfare that we fight. The Christian who isn't praying, he, he could be strong in, in the Lord. He could be strong in wearing the armor, but he's really not accomplishing a lot because he fails to go into battle through prayer. You can be defensive, but the way that we gain ground in the kingdom is through prayer, through the offensive measures that we take in prayer. So when he says praying with all prayer and supplication, the word supplication here means to plead, to supply an urgent need. It's a plea. It's saying, God, please supply. Please do this. He's saying to be committed to prayer. He says be diligent, watchful in prayer. He says to persevere in prayer. This verse is packed with instruction on prayer as a means of doing spiritual battle. He uses the term supplication, petition. He's talking about on behalf of others, that's intercession. Those are all forms of prayer. And we are to be people that are committed to prayer. Be a person of prayer, persevering in prayer for others. That's why we're going to open the church next Saturday or next Sunday, Monday and Tuesday nights, 6.30. You want to be here? uh, No, wait, 7 o'clock. You want to come down and be here? We're going to pray. We want to pray each night. We want to pray for this election. We want to pray for our country. We want to pray for the region that we're in. We want to pray for the outcome of the election. And, and, and we want to pray that, that, there's a, that peace and order can be maintained because no matter who wins or who loses, it's looking like it could be pretty messy out there. So we want to pray. We want to be people who are moving things. We know that we're moving things in the spiritual arena that we, as a little church, that we can have great impact on the spiritual realm. It doesn't matter if you're a big church or a little church. What matters is that we're willing to pray. We're willing to take this battle seriously. That's what we're going to do. Verse 19, he says, And as for me, and for me, pray that utterance is given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, for Paul to say, pray for me that I could open my mouth, (laughs) isn't that kind of like saying, I'm going to pray that, Water comes out of my garden hose when I turn on the water. I mean, it's kind of a given, right? No, not really. Notice here, Paul is not asking for them to pray for his release. He's a prisoner. He's chained to a guy. He's going to be there (laughs) until he's eventually executed. No, he's asking them to pray that he's more effective in the ministry that God's given him. He has his priorities aligned with the will of God. He's asking them to pray that he hears from the Lord, that the Holy Spirit informs his thinking, that he knows what to say when it's time to say it. He knows when to hold back when it's time to hold back. He knows when to speak forth. He's asking them pray for that. He's praying for boldness to speak what God is giving to him, because very often things that God gave him were tough, but he knows that he's right where God wants him. He knows that this Roman jail, this Roman imprisonment is not something that God just kind of woke up and went, oh my gosh, I didn't realize what was going on with that. No, he knows that this is central to God's will for his life. 
And so he's saying, pray for me and pray that I'm more effective in carrying out his will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, Paul talks about his attitude in this. He says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be uh, should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's not asking them to pray for his relief. He's asking them to pray for him to have a bigger hose and for more water to come out. He wants to increase in his ministry. That's why he's saying, pray for me. Yeah, pray. Be effective in the battle. Pray for me that I'm effective in the battle. That's what he's saying. Verse 20 says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, there's some beautiful wordplay going on here. Paul knew that men of stature and wealth and position in his day, that customarily they wore these big honking gold chains around their neck. That's how they showed off. That's how they pronounced their importance or big chains around their, their, their wrists. So the wordplay that he's doing, he's saying as a prisoner of Christ, remember, he says that early in this letter, he says, he didn't say, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm here because this is the will of God for my life. He says, as a prisoner of Christ, he knew he was right where God wanted him. Therefore, he embraced his chains. The wordplay is just wonderful in that. It's the second time that he asked for boldness. Twice, he says, pray that I'm bold. Folks, I pray for you that you're bold. I pray that we are bold in our witness in these last days that as we see things crumbling around us that we can come alongside others and say, you know what? Let me share with you the hope that I have in this. Yeah, these things, they're upsetting. Yeah, they're horrible to watch. That doesn't mean I'm not affected. But at the end of the day, I want to be like Paul. I want to, You know what? I know I'm right where God wants me. And I want to be effective in the ministry that he's given me. And right now that ministry is to share his love with you. Pray for boldness. Pray for boldness for yourself. I tell you guys, I think the time is short. And yeah, they've been saying that for a long time, but I don't think there's ever been a convergence of the signs that the Bible talks about that illuminate the fact that the time is short. Be bold in your witness. Be bold in the witness of your life and in the witness of your mouth talked about earlier about the world, the flesh, and the devil. First John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's important, gang, as we look at the battle, the spiritual battle that's going on around us, it's critically important that we understand that we do battle with the world, our flesh, and the devil. The, the thing that's critically important is that I not allow my will to be engaged with those things. We haven't been given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And as such that we identify the battle by the Holy Spirit, he, he lets me know the battle's on. And as I go through the battle, I can bring his word to bear in my lives. I can cast down those imaginations, those speculations, those things that exalt themselves against the, the, the knowledge of God in my life, and I can bring his word to bear that I don't have to obey the lusts of my flesh. I don't have to engage my will in saying okay to that. We do that. We sin. We know we have an advocate with the Father. 
Jesus Christ himself, and that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I don't want to engage my will with the world, with my flesh, or with the devil. As I'm doing that, I see victory in my life in the midst of the battles. In James 4, 7, James writes, Submit to God. Resist the devil. That's how you resist. You don't engage your will. You don't say yes to sin. You don't engage the enticements. You identify them and you resist. It says that what does Satan do? He has to flee. He'll flee from you. So Paul begins now, he wraps up this letter. In verse 21, he says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. So Paul introduces this guy Tychicus, and he's not an unknown character in the word of God. In the New Testament, he's listed in five books. He's here in Ephesians, in Acts, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Oops. What this tells us is that he was often used as a, as a runner. He was used as a messenger for Paul. This, that was what this guy's ministry was. And although he's mentioned in several books, Tychicus never says anything. He doesn't have an auditory witness in the word of God. However, Paul refers to him as a faithful minister. And I think that's significant. Because, folks, look, I, you, you guys know, I, I resist the school bus mentality of doing church. That's where you all put your money in the plate or in the box, and, and you pay the, the, the pastor to stand up here and do this. No, we're all ministers. The work of the ministry, as we've looked at here in this book, is to do, to learn, to be equipped, to do the work of ministry. For Tychicus, it was carrying this letter and carrying other letters to other churches. He was a faithful minister, and he never said a word. What's your ministry? What is God calling you to do? What is the call on your life? Regardless of what it is, he's calling for faithfulness, to simply be faithful in that which God is pressing you to do. Verse 22, he says, I've sent Tychicus to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. So Tychicus had two purposes in coming to the Ephesians, in coming to Ephesus. The first was to know Paul's, to, to make known Paul's affairs, to bring this letter. The second was to comfort their hearts. And if you remember, if you look in Acts chapter 20, there, there's Paul and, and, and the Ephesian elders, the elders, the, the, the guys that were running the church, the guys that God had raised up to oversee the church. They go to a place called Miletus, which is a little south of Ephesus. Paul meets them there and they pray together. They weep together because the Holy Spirit had shown Paul that chains and tribulation awaited him back in Jerusalem and he had to go. And he knew and they knew that they would never see one another again until they got to heaven. And so these guys loved Paul. Remember, Paul spent a few years in Ephesus. He, you know, they stopped teaching in the synagogue because things got tough. They founded the school of Tyrannus. He was there for two years teaching, equipping, discipling people, pouring into them, raising up leaders so that when he departed, the church would go on. And so here's Tychicus coming back and saying, hey guys, 
I know you're concerned for Paul. I know the words come to you that he's in jail, that he's at Rome, and that he's in chains. Let me tell you what's going on. And that's why Paul is sending him. He's saying, go and reassure these guys' hearts. Let them know I'm doing well. Yeah, I've got circumstances. And you know what? You might have tough circumstances, but are you doing well? Talking to my brother with the medical things that he's got, I sensed underlying all of that. He's doing well because he loves the Lord. He knows that his life is in God's hands. And we talked a little bit about that and go into that. But the point is, is that whether or not we're doing well is not dependent on our circumstances. That's what Paul's point is with these guys. He's sending Tychicus. He's saying, go, go let them know. Tell them how we're doing. Bring news of what's going on here in Rome. We're carrying out the ministry. The Praetorian Guard is coming to Christ. These people are being affected. I've been writing these letters one after another. And he wrote four letters, the prison epistles in the New Testament, while he's chained to this guy. So God had set him apart for his purposes. And Paul is embracing that. He's saying, go tell him I'm okay. Bring this letter to them because I have some instruction for them. They've been on my heart and I want to address some things with them. That's why he sent Tychicus. Verse 23, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul concludes now his letter in the same way that he began it, grace and peace. The Siamese twins of the New Testament, Charis and Shalom, the two essential cornerstones for the Christian life. Do you have peace? Are you experiencing his grace? It wasn't just a salutation. He meant it. He started and he ended this letter with grace and peace. Verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. The word sincerity here, it's an interesting one. What he's talking about in the context of, of grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. He's talking about a love that is unceasing. It's always, it's eternal. It's undying. He's saying, grace be to those who have an eternal love. It's not a love that's interrupted by death. And what he's saying here is walk in grace. Receive God's peace. Know that his will for your life, you might have tough circumstances. He did, but that you can have peace. You can have joy. You can have the fruit of God's spirit. You can be equipped to do the battle in the evil day because the days are evil and that you can take courage because your life is right within where God wants it to be. I don't know what circumstances you might be facing this morning. I don't know what trials you're facing. Hold those up to the word of God. Hold them up by the spirit of God. Hold them up to the Lord in prayer. Allow him to destroy any speculations, any, anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of him in your lives. As we do that on a consistent basis, folks, we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of him. If you don't know the Lord this morning, perhaps you're watching online or you're here and God is speaking to you. He's showing you that he's patient for you to repent, to change your mind about him, about Jesus, about the kingdom of God. Understand that Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead that he could give you life. Not just eternal life, but an abundant life here, regardless of your circumstances. Simple prayer that you can pray is Lord or or God, 
I've lived my life away from you. I've lived my life essentially in rebellion towards you. I've pushed you off, but I don't have answers. My life's a mess. My heart is yearning for more, and I haven't been able to find it. You pray a simple prayer that says, I'm I'm changing my mind. I, I repent of my sin. I turn from the old life, and I embrace Jesus. I let the weight of my life down on Jesus. If that's what you're doing, pray that prayer. Let today be the day that you stop compromising, you stop living marginalized, and you find purpose and understanding and meaning in your life. Does it mean it'll be easy? No, the battle's on. Does it mean it'll be worth it? Every bit and more. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, I just want to thank you for this glorious book that you put it upon this man's heart to write this letter to this church so long ago, and yet the lessons are absolutely relevant for today. They're absolutely essential that we gain understanding, that we gain purpose, and that we gain knowledge on how to confront the issues of the day. Lord, we know that this is a spiritual battle, so I pray for each one, uh, Lord, within the sound of my voice, that you would empower us, that you would equip us, that you would give us the ability to parry and repose, that we would be able to take your word, apply it to our lives in increasing ways, in increasing measure, and that peace would be the result. I thank you, Lord. I pray for each one that you, by your Holy Spirit, would meet us where we're at, that you would do a powerful work. We commit this to you in Jesus' name.